Sri Das. Megalama. Hey. How you doing, Betty? Hey. Working hard out there? Not too hard. Uh, liberating countless sentient beings? Self-liberation. <laughs> <laughs> Starts at the home. The man's bodhisattva way. <laughs> uh, well, one of the things I want to talk about is how you got interested in this in the first place. Just sort of kind of go over it because it's a great story. Um, and then also continue to reflect on just the state of spirituality in general, uh, Buddhism in particular, but it really, anything that applies to Buddhism applies to virtually any authentic spiritual orientation. And so, um, so you were four years old when you started meditating. No, I was four years old when I started playing baseball. <laughs> so how did you uh, get out of that location? I never got out of that. You still play it? Um, when I can. Not enough. So when did you actually get wind? Because... People tend to forget, when you and I were going through high school, in this country there were basically no meditation centers. There wasn't even, you know, in 1967 when I graduated, people hardly even heard a TM. I mean, the Beatles were poking their head around and heading over to India to meet the Maharishi. Um, there were no Zen centers. You know, I never saw anything like that. So when did Nothing you... going on in the synagogue or anything that was of interest in that way. When did you get wind of any of this? Um... The first time I knew about Buddhism was when I saw on TV that monk immolating himself on the corner in Saigon yep. to bring attention, the world's attention to the war in Vietnam. Right. That was a rather striking image. Of course, it made no sense to me, but it did pique my curiosity how anybody could do that and why they would do that. And you know, I started to ask a few questions or read a little, but there wasn't that much really accessible or interesting, you know, for a 16-year-old to read at that time. What year was that when you were 16? The middle to late 60s. Yeah, yeah. So the interesting thing about that image, of course, was that it's not that somebody just set themselves on fire. It's somebody got in a lotus position, right. set themselves on fire, and didn't move. Yeah, and meditated while doing kind of a symbol of protest, but also of transcendence or of sacrifice or yeah. of giving yourself up for the greater good. It was pretty startling and made me think about those things for the first time, questions that had never come up, you know, in Hebrew school or in high school and Poli Sci class. So I started to think about the East a little bit differently rather than just the pictures I had in my mind of masses bathing in the Ganges or something (laughs) like that. Between starving. Yeah. Yeah. But then I started to read more widely. And of course, you mentioned the Beatles, you know, the Beatles and folk music and Allen Ginsberg and whoever started to talk about those things. Right. Did you read Alan Watts? Yeah, Alan Watts, of course. And Krishnamurti. Krishnamurti, R.D. Lang, yeah. Ram Das, um, Aldous Huxley, or right. that, right. Herman Hess, and so on. Right. Formative reading and thinking and kind of campus consciousness at that time, Fritz Perls, encounter groups. I went to Esalen and went to some encounter groups there and then at college on weekends. Where were you at college? I was at State University of New York at Buffalo. Yeah. And that's where I first really practiced Buddhism and yeah. yoga. I, and I went to a weekend with Kaplow Roshi in 68 when I was a freshman. Philip Kaplow. Philip Kaplow Roshi, the founder of the Rochester Zen Center. He was probably the first American Zen master. Well, I think what Philip Kaplow did was a monumental service 
to Buddhism in general, but spirituality in particular in this country, because as you know, up to that time, uh, as great as Alan Watts was in terms of interpreter and explanation and all of that, he really had a kind of talking Zen approach. Right. He was a little bit too influenced by Krishnamurti in a sense. We're already enlightened, which is in the deepest sense is certainly true, but therefore any sort of path or any sort of effort is merely taking you away from the enlightened state. That's a very, very high realization that comes frankly, only after years of practice, as you know, even though it's essentially true now and in every moment. But in order to realize that, it's not something you can do just falling off a log, so to speak. Right, well, I think he a little bit had, he had the disease of shunyata, too much emptiness and not enough methods. You know, uh, Kaplow was a Zen master, and I was very impressed by his personal presence. Well, the great thing that Kaplow did, the book, The Three Pillars of Zen, changed everything. He First of all, he took Alan Watts to task for just what we're talking about. And he said, look, Zen is first and foremost, it's a practice. So the three pillars of Zen were basically that. It was it was practice, it was realization, it was training. And that changed everything when that book came out. And certainly for me, when I read that book, I went, okay, I can't just sit around thinking this stuff anymore. Right. Well, that's what drove me to a Zen weekend. My roommate, David Schneider, and I hitchhiked from Buffalo to Rochester, and we got right. arrested by the cops on the way, on the next throughway, <laughs> typical, you know, 60 stores, getting busted on the way to meditate. Right. <laughs> you know, the small vehicle, the paddy wagon. <laughs> exactly. You know, but it wasn't much of a bust after all, you know. <laughs> but, uh, so we went to this weekend, and that kind of changed my thinking about things because of the emphasis on practice, on right. silence, on the concentration and the mind, and looking into the mind with Zen men, and also on enlightenment. But remember, Three Pillars of Zen has a great section in there about enlightenment. Experience. Absolutely. That was the first time I really read, you know, like from a Zen master's point of view, not just some funny stories, but, you know, more like about the psychology and the experience right. of enlightenment, the students in modern times we're having. Exactly. And there were accounts... In modern times, like me, could have these. And there were accounts of the students themselves, right. eight or nine of them, who would have profound satories, realizations. Yeah. So I started to want that, too, and not just to get high, but to be free. Yeah. And I think a real whiff of freedom there. And then Kaplow's personal presence was very impressive, and the Zendo and all was quite different than what I was used to, so that was different enough to really pique my interest. And after that, I started to try to meditate more and find a practice I could do, which, of course, in the dormitories of college life was hard to do. But I sort of carried that theme with me for the next few years, and then that, I think, drove me. At the end of college, rather than going to grad school, I went to India to plumb the root. Incidentally, by the way, my first sitting with a Zen teacher was with Philip Kaplow as well, and the way it happened in my case was very good friends of mine in Lincoln, Nebraska, would vacation once a year in a place in Mexico called Spa Rio Caliente, and it just turned out that that was for Philip Kaplow vacationed each year. So I went with them on vacation intentionally mm -hmm. to meet Kaplow and introduce myself to him, and he was wonderful. I was 23 at the time. I was writing Spectrum of Consciousness, and he had two or three of his students, and so he invited me to sit in with their meditation and it had the same kind of impact on me. He's a wonderful person. But why didn't you end up just studying at Rochester with him? Well, it was totally clear that I wasn't ready. I mean, I met him when I was 17 years old. I went back to college and I was getting stoned. I never even went to Rochester to see him again. Because it just wasn't, your time wasn't right. Yeah, my time wasn't right and I was busy. You know, I went to Washington to march in demonstrations and I went to yeah. California for Esalen workshops, yeah. counter groups and went to Woodstock Festival. So you were actually... Experimental phase, experimental time. You were at three days of peace, love, and music? 
Mm-hmm. Did your smiling face make it into the film? No, I never saw it, but I saw a lot of other smiling faces that looked just like mine, <laughs> including the mud and the long hair and, the, you know, the running after the helicopters, dropping the sandwiches when there was no more food. And my car was mired to the hubcaps and mud. It took us till Monday night or afternoon to get it out. <laughs> And so then off to India, though, at some point. Yeah, well, then in May of 1970, my friend was shot and killed at Kent State. Yeah. Krauss, so yeah. that kind of turned my head around about fighting for peace and protesting and radical politics. And I started to think, you know, it was kind of a shock to me. It had felt very romantic and exciting the late 60s, almost like we were sort of narcissistic, like, Yes, we feel like we're changing the world, but also like we're in a movie. It was all very exciting and unreal. And yeah. suddenly it became a lot more real, dangerous, like life and death intruded. You mean like, oh, we might not grow up. You know, somebody could be dead. You know, an artist, not even a soldier who's gone off to fight a war. Like you could be killed on campus. And I thought, oh, I could die too. I started to think about things, you know, face, mentality, yeah. yeah. impermanence, and eternity a little differently. Sure. And, 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 uh, Anyway, I graduated in May of 71, and by the end of May, I was hitchhiking across Europe, in Greece, going the overland route across Turkey, Tehran. You'd have a little harder time getting across there today, wouldn't you? Yes, it's different. Yeah. It was nice then, and I climbed up inside the twin Buddhas at Bamiyan, and Uh, ended up in uh, India in uh, about August of 71 in my first Vipassana meditation course with Gawenka. That was the beginning of my daily meditation practice, which I don't know how... It's amazing, but I would say I've been meditating every day since then, since August of 71. Yeah. And so um, I always consider Goenka my first meditation teacher. Right. really got me meditating. Kapila Roshi introduced me, but I didn't keep meditating from that. Yeah. Goenka, I went to many Goenka courses. He's a wonderful teacher. He is wonderful. He's a little puritanical, but besides that, he's certainly wonderful. I understand. Well, it's a puritanical streak in Theravadan. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so then you decided, though, that you wanted to deepen your understanding and realization, so you, you basically kept pursuing Buddhism in some of its other paths. Yeah, well, Buddhism, I wasn't really just fixed on Buddhism, you know, but I was looking for God or truth or peace or wisdom or something. It's just consciousness training, really, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, yeah. and it was, it was the early 70s, and again, I was young. I hit India. I was still 20. Yeah. And um, I went to Nukaroli Baba, and he gave me my name, and he was my first guru. Um, he died in 73, and then I went to Lama Yeshe in Zopin, Kathmandu, Nepal, and uh-huh. visited their monastery, and met the Dalai Lama in 71 and 72. And then when Maharaji died in 73, I started to stay full-time with my Tibetan teachers, Kalarupache and Karmapa's monastery in Darjeeling and, yeah. and Sikkim. So I didn't, never really decided, but it just sort of went in that direction. Then in 74, I needed money, so I went to Japan. So I just keep studying Buddhism, you know, in this case Zen, but also work and make some money. And why Japan? Yoto and studied Zen in Japan with Uchiyama Roshi. Why did you? Why was it easier to make money in Japan than in India? Well, you can't make money in India. But you don't need money in India. Right. Well, if you stay there for a few years, you might. Okay. Get visas or medicine or. Food. I see. You know, minimal money, like a thousand or two thousand a year. But I was there year after year. You know, I sold my pen. I sold my dungaree jacket, Freak Street in Kathmandu. You know, five or ten dollars worth of a jacket. Keep you going for a month or two. Months. Yeah. So you went. You ended up in Kyoto. So I went to Kyoto, lived near a Daitokuji monastery in Kyoto, and studied Zen with Uchiyama Roshi at uh, Antaiji, where quite a few Westerners studied. Yeah. 
and then I went back to be with Kyle Rupchay and Darjeeling in 75. So you had a few dollars in your pocket, enough to keep you yeah, going for, right. yeah. For another few years in India. And so you were back and studying with Kahlo again. Mm -hmm. And is that when you went into your first retreat? No. Um, he went to Europe to start the first three-year retreat for Westerners. Then he and Karmapa asked me and a few other people like me to help translate and bring some lamas to their centers in the West. So I went and did that and started the KTD Monastery in Woodstock in 77, 78. Uh-huh. And then in 80, I went to France to join the next round of three-year retreat. And so that was your first yeah. extended? Yeah, 80. Yeah. And the, how did you feel your practice was going at that time? Did you feel it was adequate, that you were really understanding it was moving forward, you were, there were still yearnings that weren't being answered? What was your sort of general state as you were Yeah, all of that, Ken, you know, yeah. I was still young and, and exploring and, you know, the language was, the languages were hard and the concepts and, you know, I studied Tibetan, but it, it was hard to, you know, understand Sanskrit or, or Hinduism, yeah. English. So, and yoga and these things were just being explained and, you know, good translators and Western teachers that could bridge the gap were just emerging. So, I, I felt good. I mean, I, I was really into it, but there were definitely questions and doubts and so on. And But um, I completed my Nundro there in Woodstock in 77. Uh -huh. And, you know, I was deep into Tibetan Buddhist practice. No doubt about that. I mean, yeah. you know, hundreds of thousands of practices and all. But I would say that um, I had a glimpse of what I called God in the late 60s, but I didn't really get what I'd call introduction to the nature of the mind until I was in my three-year retreat. Yeah. And, and that was in the early 80s. So in the 70s, I was practicing, but it was kind of like I was practicing without clarity about the goal. Sure. But you were still, obviously, there was a very deep um, drive in the best sense and a deep doubt in the best sense. As you know, Zen uses the word yeah, doubt right. in the sense it means great doubt, means great faith, actually. Yeah, right. And so you were obviously driven by that great faith. I mean, look at the trek. Look at your journey. It's well, really extraordinary. I was full-time living in the monasteries, and, you know, if I was working, it wasn't, you know, I wasn't really a householder. But it was really only in the 80s when I was in a three-year retreat and became a monk that I really got some traction, I would say on the path and realized that my guru's mind, heart, mind, and mind were not different. Right. And with that glimpse of the goal or of the reality underlying everything. The ground. The, the ground and the path was greatly enhanced. All the relative practices are greatly enhanced by right. kind of view or, let's say, recognition or even realization. Right. And those are big words, but it's not so far from us, so I don't hesitate to use them at this point. One of the things that's so extraordinary, as you know, is it's the utter simplicity of the ever-present that makes Satori or Kensho or a glimpse into the nature of mind seem difficult because it literally is the nature of this in every moment. And that realization is, in a sense, it's the goal, but it's also the ground. But it's one of the great things in, I think, the Buddhist tradition that tends to be forgotten or at least not put front and center in some of the other spiritual traditions and that's the very fundamental importance of an actual enlightenment or realization or awakening to this timeless spaceless ever-present state that is your own true condition and that's one of the things i think that when you get that glimpse and this was certainly a profound glimpse was happening in your uh, first retreat that's when all the fundamental questions become resolved in a certain sense yeah well you know, many think that an enlightenment experience is the end of the path, but it's often been called the beginning of the true path. And that was certainly my case. After that, practice had a different meaning. You know, it's kind of like you're, you're playing the piano. You're not just practicing so one day you'll play it. Practice is 
the reality. It's not just practicing for the real thing. No, I understand. You know you are in the game. It is the game. Right. You know that there's a there there and it's here. <laughs> and so all of one's efforts are meaningful, but there's not this looking forward, you know, leaning forward always. That really changes everything. And that's why I feel that the non-dual practices like Mahamudra, Dzogchen, Vedanta, and so on, really have a lot to say to us today. I agree. The non-dual traditions themselves talk about two truths. And ultimately, the two truths are not two. But the two truths to sort of get the conversation started is the ultimate non-dual absolute radical truth, which is ever-present, timeless, isness, Mm -hmm. suchness, moment to moment, fully present. 100% of it is fully present right now. And then in the relative world, there's all the things you can do in the finite realm, including working on your personality or working on your diet or lifting weights or all the things in the relative world that you can do to become a better vehicle. Mm-hmm. And the best of the traditions pay a great deal of attention to doing both of those. And so you can do all the relative practices. You can even do psychotherapy. You can do any number of things to improve that relative vehicle. But without that realization of ever-present suchness or ground, then you really are kind of just spinning your wheels and playing in shadows. Um, and so I think that's one of the great things that these paths in particular bring to this whole area. Well, as Dzogchen Master Jigme Lingpa said that until you have that glimpse of recognition, it's just like throwing rocks in the dark. You don't know where the target is or if there's a target. But if you've had a glimpse, then everything's different. You have a different orientation. It's like knowing where the pole star is even when you can't see it. Uh, Suzuki Roshi had a wonderful way of putting all that, as you know, in Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, which is one of the wonderful statements of ever-present awareness. It's a classic. And it was that we meditate to express our Buddhahood, not to attain it. And that's a classic post-enlightenment. Perspective isn't coming from Buddha nature rather than heading towards the other shore. Exactly. Now, when you were in that retreat, the kinds of practices on a typical three-year retreat include a full spectrum, leading all the way up to ultimate Mahamudra and Zogchen Aki. Um, when did you sort of fall into the rhythm of three years? There you were, day in, day out, doing that kind of retreat. <laughs> well, at first... Entering it, you know, I felt like I was leaving everything behind. It was like dying. I had to go. I didn't really see that there would be an end to it. Of course, like everything else, three years passes. And then you're back, you know, pedestrian, pounding the streets again. (laughs) But the first year, it seemed to take a while. The second year went fast. And the third year was like a blink. Yeah. But I do remember that when I had my breakthrough or introduction to the nature of mind, then after that, time had a different meaning. Yeah. And... It sort of turned me around, and I was more uh, attuned to the ground rather than the figures. Yeah. The, the figure ground shift uh, it changed everything, and then the relationship is much more rich. So uh, in our retreat, it was more of a Dzogchen retreat anyway, so Dujim Rinpoche and Kintsu Rinpoche taught us what they call the Dzogchen view of Nindra, the Dzogchen view of deity yoga, the Dzogchen right. view of uh, tantric yoga, and right. so on. So right. there was that influence from the beginning, not just waiting for the third year or fourth yeah. year to get to the non-dual perspective and the view and all that. That's the way Chagutoku would teach as well, and so that's the introduction I had also. Um, so you came out of the three-year retreat. Well, at least it wasn't like our mutual friend Ken McLeod. You know, he went to his first three-year retreat, came out, called Rinpoche, said, you did it wrong, do it again. <laughs> so, yeah, he went back and did another three-year retreat. Well, uh, Ken has his own karma, you know. But yeah. <laughs> So you came out of that. Was that when you felt that you yourself really wanted to be a lama and dedicate your, no, your life to that? No, not at all. I didn't, I didn't think like that. I, I was in retreat. I was in France. My teachers were there. 
it was wonderful, and I wanted more of that. I wanted to do more practice. So we built another retreat center, and 13 of us uh, did another one. So I stayed there for eight years. Yeah. I was thinking about practicing and, and loved what I was doing, and I didn't know if I'd ever come back to America. You know, it was just, it was, it was my life, that's all. So you came out of that retreat, and at some point there must have been a transition into a realization that you really needed yourself to pass on this understanding, that that's part of the bargain, basically. Well, we started a third three-year retreat, but then Dujan Rinpoche died there next door in his house, and so we got involved for one year with prayers and preserving his body, and, sure. and then we took his body to Nepal and carried it, went on the plane, you know, and interred it in a stoop in Nepal. So that was kind of the end of that third, yeah. third three-year treat after one year. Yeah. Well, it's, in a certain way, though, it's a rather extraordinary way to end yeah, something was, like that, isn't it? Well, that was the transition. Then I got invited to teach in Vipassana centers in Switzerland, in England, and in America. So I started doing that. Then Kinsu Vichy died. Then I went with Nyoshi Kempo. We went to Bhutan together for the funeral. So I was kind of bouncing back and forth and doing a little teaching. You know, it just sort of happened organically that way. Right. And do you think the Tibetans had any idea that this wild American was going to start teaching Zogchen? No, no idea. <laughs> oh, man, how... I don't think the Tibetans think much about what the Westerners are doing. You know, it's a different relation. Like, the Tibetans are thinking about Tibet and what the Tibetans are going to do. Yeah. And the Westerners are there to help. I understand. To, to support and, and, you know, politically or financially or to build or to translate or to organize. That's what the Westerners are good for generally. It's one of the very, very great difficulties is that no matter how exalted a particular religion or spirituality might be, and this really applies to every spirituality that I'm aware of, it still generally comes out of a tradition. That tradition has its own kind of ethnocentric orientation, its own roots. It doesn't matter how transcendental you are, you can't jump out of your skin. Yep, and it, exactly, like and I was in Japan, you know, Japanese would say, you know, Americans can never really practice Zen or, or can get enlightened. That's right, and that's part of the difficulty with you know that Philip Kaplow had with his teacher, and it, it just it goes on and on and on, and it's a very very difficult transition to make. And the only solace we can take is that the same thing happened trying to get it into Tibet, the same thing happened getting it into China, the same thing into Korea, and it's really a process of two and three generations, you yep. know. And my hat's off to all the people, certainly like yourself, and all the people, all the our friends who are teaching. It's a really heroic act, and it's very, very difficult. And, you know, my politically incorrect joke about this is one of the definitions of pioneer is the guy with all the arrows in his back. Yeah, right. And I know a lot of people with arrows in their back. Yeah, well, you know, I see ourselves as part of the bridge generations, and, you know, bridges have to be walked over, and so we get a little stepped on sometimes. But that's, it's also an honor. We get to uphold this tradition and path as it's crossing over from east to west and, you know, just becoming more of a whole. Yeah. And so in the 90s, as people were asking me to come and teach, I started to bring those people to Nepal and to India and to France to meet my teachers. And we led some two-month retreats with a lot of Vipassana teachers and people like Ramdas and Dan Goldman attending in the early 90s. So eventually, you know, it wasn't just I started teaching Dzogchen. I brought my teachers and translated for them, and I was yeah. teaching too. Yeah. And... Uh, then, you know, sometimes they canceled and didn't come, and I had to teach it myself. 
and things like that. And then, of course, those teachers started to die. So, Don't you think you really yeah. stepped into this when your own teacher died? And one of the things that he left you with on his deathbed was the desire that you would produce a hundred of you? Yeah, well, he said a hundred lineage heirs like yourself. Right. Also, I was interpreting for him for countless interviews. This is one of the best teacher's trainings I've had. Yeah. So, looking back, I mean, we've now had 30 years of this sort of wonderful experiment where 30 years ago there was literally none of these alternative approaches, whether it's shamanic or psychedelics or meditation or any of these sorts of spiritual realizations, um, certainly the Western tradition has a fair number of those, but they're not very common in this country and certainly not very easy to find. So we had 30 years of that, which has been exquisite in terms of both the things we learned that worked and the many things we learned that didn't work or didn't work very well. And so now it's kind of, I tend to see the next decade or so as a consolidation period where people kind of sit back, they can reflect, uh, see the way authentic spirituality is growing, whether it's happening in Judaism or Kabbalah, it's a lot of Christian, Orthodox, conventional Christian approaches are getting deeply interested in their own mystical mm-hmm. roots and their own mystical traditions, which are very rich. And all of, you know, Father Thomas Keating, for example, Rabbi Zalman and so on, these are really extraordinary men and women that are drawing on their own deep traditions to bring a more authentic living presence and ground and realization. And so I think in the one hand, the last 30 years are certainly exciting, and Lord knows we could make a movie out of your adventures. I mean, it's you know quite well, incredible. I mean, Greg already did a half-hour sitcom about my life. It was called The Return of Leonard. <laughs> I was honoring Greg once. This guy at Chuck Noll came to one of my day-longs, and he liked me, so he wrote an installment of Don McGreg based on my life. It's great. The Return of Leonard. Sorry, Doss version. Yeah. Um, right, <laughs> Leonard. Leonard comes back from Nepal, and he's sort of celibate, but he, you know, he touches people, and they feel better, and you know, he also likes sports. He goes to the Laker game. I'm going to have to run down a copy of that now. <laughs> it's kind of reaches all levels of our culture. That's why this is a time of consolidation and, you know, integration also. Yeah. Like what you were talking about, the Christians and Jews looking more deeply for meditation and yeah. mysticism in their own tradition. Some of this is a result of the cross-fertilization, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. Interaction with the East. So just like the Eastern traditions are becoming less quietistic and a little more socially engaged or democratic. Yeah, I agree entirely. I was brought up Southern Baptist, which might be the, the least spiritual uh, <laughs> religion on the face of the planet. I didn't know that about you. Yes, yes. When I first got into college and started exploring these things, found Alan Watts and Krishnamurti and Ramana Maharshi and so on, I was just stunned. I had absolutely no idea mm-hmm. that spirituality had anything to do with that. I thought spirituality was about not drinking, not smoking, and not and, and burning in hell forever. We were introduced to it was social and it was very exoteric. Very mythic membership, blue meme, yeah. conformist, conventional, whatever term you want to use. And so when I really started exploring Eastern traditions, I then could come back and look at the Western traditions and go, well, good heavens, they're, they're just all over the place, you know, but you have to look for them. So it was a real revelation for me to be able to come back and, in a sense, befriend my own Judeo-Christian roots by understanding some of the deeper currents present in those traditions. Well, I, I found that growing up I couldn't get much stimulation or depth in my own Hebrew school experience or talking to my friends or their priests, you know. But when I came back from India and started to look at it through the eye of Dharma a little more, certainly could see so much of that wisdom in Jesus' Gospels or the saints and mystics. 
not to mention the Kabbalah and the Zohar, things I had never heard about while growing up in, in you know, suburban Judaism. Yeah. But how old were you when you first started reading those books? Then? You know, it was uh, 1967 was the summer of love, right, in San Francisco. I graduated from high school in 67, which must I think very similar to when you did, didn't you? I graduated in 68. 68. So I went to Duke University in the medical program and started reading Taoism and Watts and Krishnamurti during that year, and it blew everything open. And that was 68, really. And I was doing protests at Duke University. We were doing sit-ins. We were very, very, I think very sincere, but a little... Um, naive, let's say, and a little taken with ourselves, I suspect. Uh, so, but Pete Seeger came by and Bobby Kennedy and Joan Baez sang to us and the National Guard gassed the campus in 1968. It was all sort of standard yeah. boomer education in those days. And as I really, really got into the practice of it and found the three pillars of Zen and then went down and met Philip Caplow and started a, a very intense practice, then it was a very, very quick acceleration, but it had no relation to the entire first half of my life. Mm-hmm. It's an entirely different universe, you know. And now it's it's so great because I see kids that are 17 and 18 and 19. 19-year-olds show up here to work at Integral Institute. They've read all of my stuff. They've been practicing meditation for years. They've gone to two or three retreats. And I look at them and I go, holy mackerel, come over here. Let me strangle you, you little shit. <laughs> So it's really exquisite, actually. Well, you were like a tulku. You got it right away. You were very young. I'm amazed when I look at those first books of yours. You wrote them when you were like 22 or 23, right? Yeah, I did. You have to sort of believe in reincarnation in a certain sense. Your example as well. Most of the people I know that really got into this, there was a recognition sometime in their teens. Something was calling them. That, that they had a very, very profound realization that this path was theirs, so to speak. And I think, you know... It makes a certain amount of sense, doesn't it? We came a little yeah. bit primed for this thing. Right. So I think, I think there are a few things that we need to look into today that are not popular but still have to be kept in the recipe, like rigorousness and investigation and questioning and self-discipline. And I know some of these words don't have the great associations, but I think they're very appropriate. Uh, sacrifice and renunciation. Like, I really couldn't get what I was after without giving up a lot. Yeah. And just dabbling or trying to meditate while I was at college or even just traveling around in India. You know, I got a lot, but I had to focus more. So for me, that meant not, you know, besides daily practice, like long retreats, monasticism, you know, language study, like rigor, you know, devoting myself to one teacher for quite a while. Right. I mean, I'm all for doing it with everybody, and I've done it with everybody too, but I also have one or two teachers that I really devoted myself to and that knew me and, you know, got on my case when they needed to. It wasn't abstract like today. So many people say the Dalai Lama is my teacher. Or Ramana Maharshi. Right. Everybody. We need an upa guru. Like exactly. Somebody to push our buttons. Or I agree. A local mentor, spiritual benefactor. Well, that's one of the things we want to talk about next time, perhaps, is kind of the overall state of affairs, if you will, of Buddhism in particular, but spirituality in general. We want to talk about some of the missteps, which... I think in many cases can be summarized as sort of the boomeritis approach and also the positive things. And everything that you mentioned in my book is a positive, even though, as you say, they're not exactly snappy catchwords for today's uh, atmosphere. So that's one of the things we, I think, be very important to review because this is a period of consolidation. We are looking back and saying, you know, believe it or not, I've gained a certain wisdom over <laughs> over three decades of trying to do this. And the dust has settled a little bit. We've had a chance to 
see what parts of us were driven by deep wisdom, what parts by neurosis, what parts by confusion, and hopefully make some sort of mid-course correction in a sense or overall review of what we've done and ways to best carry it forward for ourselves and the next generation. Yeah, it's about balance. I think it is about balance. And also, you know, I feel like, just to speak personally, that I spent 40 or 50 years looking for what I was looking for, and now, to some extent, I found it, and now it's time for me to pass that on before I die. I think that's you know, exactly and, right. And we need to mentor others and not just become old fools. Somebody needs to be the elders for the next generation. Yeah. And we need a little real integrity or, or determination to do that, you know, some kind of real direction to focus, to not be perfectionistic and keep perfecting ourselves in this imperfect world, yeah. but also pass it on. You're not waiting until we're all perfect before we can try to help anybody else. That would just paralyze us. Well, I frequently say a lot of people have hesitancy about becoming teachers, and I understand that. But the standard response there is, uh, second graders can teach first grade. <laughs> That's right. And, uh, you know, those of us who are concerned about that may be the most likely to be good teachers rather than people who are rushing into it. Or look at the rabbis, priests, and teachers and professors we have today. Four or five years of graduate school, they're not, they may be 30, and then they're passing it on. Frightening thought. So, uh, you know, if we're concerned that we're not good enough, maybe that's partly a good qualification to be a responsible, humble elder. Yeah, I think rather it's than a know-it-all expert that thinks, you know, we, we're better than everybody else. So, if we know our limitations, we can really work to produce, you know, to people who outstrip, who far outstrip us. One hopes. Yeah, one one would hope. Yeah, it's a an old saying too is that if you don't have at least one student that surpasses you, you're a lousy teacher. <laughs> that, that's a great teach, slogan. Is that a spiritual slogan or is that out of a teacher's college? I just heard it for a while. I think it's yeah. a great. I think it actually was a philosopher. It might have been somebody from, you know, some German whose name began with an H. Uh-huh. <laughs> Most of their philosophers' names begin with an H, so. <laughs> I don't know what that story is. <laughs> Oh, God. Well, this is great. Um, next time we talk, we'll do kind of a focus on the state of affairs today, you know, boomeritis Buddhism, what we can do about that, the difference between selecting a language to skillful means address an audience versus getting caught up in the philosophy of that language. We can use an egalitarian language uh, as long as we're aware of what we're doing because it too many people with sort of narcissism will confuse a great perfection, everything is already self-liberated statement with the notion that their ego, just as it is, yeah, is perfect. Exactly. He's a guru. and they Yeah, which is a nightmare, as you know. And so we can kind of redress, talk about that, see how we can move that forward in a way that unites those two paradoxical aspects that you were talking about, which is, yes, right now everything literally is the great perfection. It's self-liberating in its own condition as it arises. And you have to practice about 10 years before you can say that with any authenticity. And until we start to get both sides of those, you know, it, it can really be unfortunate. So that's one of the things that we can get into a little bit more of the substance. Okay, good. Okay, pal. Okay. Much love to you. Love. Bye-bye.